I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode, and today's guest is Rebecca Hunt Foster. She is a district paleontologist in the Canyon Country District in southeastern Utah for the Bureau of Land Management. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me. So um, let's start with what we always start with. Um, What is it that you actually do? I do a variety of things. Um, Working for the Bureau of Land Management here in Utah, I get to work with fossils every day, but it's a variety of ways that I interact with fossils. I either am working directly with researchers that want to come out and do work. I'm working with the public, either helping to educate them about fossils or give public tours and talks, or I may um, interact with the public when they find a fossil, they'll bring it to me and, um, or I'll go out on a hike with them to help them identify what they found, which happens a lot out here. It's really cool. Um, So I get to have the best of both worlds. I get to work with the public and I get to work with my fellow scientists, which is pretty cool. And occasionally I get to work on some of my own research as well. Right. That's always at the bottom of the list, right? (laughs) <laughs> these days. <laughs> when, when you say work with fossils, what is it that you're actually doing? Um, it can be a variety of things. It can be anything from being out in the field and cleaning off a brand new dinosaur track site that we just found um, and interacting directly with the, the ancient sediment that's filled in these tracks and cleaning them so that we can study them and potentially show them to the public. And I get to help researchers that are coming to the area um, be able to do their own fossil excavations. We have to clear everything before they can work there. So I may, like today, I had to go out with one of my fellow archaeologists and help him look at an area where a paleontologist wants to do an excavation so that we could make sure we wouldn't impact any cultural sites so that we didn't find any, any artifacts that we would need to worry about. So sometimes I get to work with fossils on that level, and sometimes I get to actually study things that either I have found or that um, people have suggested that I get to work on. So that's pretty much the way I interact with fossils. You mentioned that that, uh, visitors and and other people hiking through the parks and stuff find fossils. (laughs) What do they find, and and how common is that? Is that like a daily thing, or is this a, a once every few years or decade thing? Oh, it's, it's not a daily thing, but it's definitely everywhere from a monthly to a weekly thing, at least. It depends on how many people are out hiking at a period of time. Um, and luckily here in the Moab, Utah area, we're really lucky because all of the rocks exposed in this area are from the Mesozoic area for the most part. So a lot of dinosaur fossils and a lot of uh, tracks are found in the Moab area. And we do have some rocks also that are a little bit older and a little bit younger than dinosaurs and the Mesozoic. So we get a variety of fossils that are found by the public. It's actually really cool. And how common are dinosaur fossils versus fossils of other things? Um, in the Moab area, um, dinosaur fossils are pretty much the main thing that people will find, with the exception of petrified wood. People find a lot of petrified wood, but when it comes to um, vertebrates or invertebrates, they're almost always finding dinosaur bones. So I heard a, um, 
a podcast episode not that long ago about people stealing petrified wood from from national parks. Do you have a similar problem? Do you deal with people like coming in and finding something and trying to sneak fossils off off the, out of the park with a you know is or is that just a petrified wood thing? Well, so that happened, the Park Service, so the National Park Service has particular rules about what you are and are not allowed to remove from a park, and that includes all fossils. All fossils are not allowed to be removed from national parks. I work on Bureau of Land Management land, and we're a Mm -hmm. multi-use agency, so we do allow for um, collection of fossils by um, people who are interested in them. So when it comes to fossil wood... They can collect 25 pounds a day or 250 pounds a year of fossilized wood. That's a lot of wood. That's so much. It's a lot of wood, but some logs, like you'll pick up one log and it may weigh anywhere from 25 pounds to 100 pounds for just one little chunk that's like dinner plate sized and maybe, you know, six, six inches to 12 inches in thickness. They can be pretty heavy. So you can collect your 250 pound limit really quickly, like in less than a week. Oh, wow. Uh, so what type of dinosaurs uh, were in the area? Or what are the fossils that are appearing? Or so, uh, yeah, a lot of the fossils have been um, excavated from this area that are more well known are a lot of dinosaurs from the early Cretaceous Cedar Mountain Formation. Um, and that's a formation that's only been being worked for the last... 20 years or so since the early 90s and they've found dinosaurs like utah raptor um like the big velociraptor in jurassic park is more akin to a a utah raptor in size and then we have an armored dinosaur called gastonia that's been found here um there's also been a dinosaur named hippodraco and iguana colossus those are some hadrosaurs we get um, large sauropod or plant-eating dinosaurs as well so we get a, a wide variety of dinosaurs coming out of the Cedar Mountain Formation recently. But we also have your more traditional dinosaurs like Apatosaurus, Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, Diplodocus. Um, so everything. we get a lot. We get everything. We're really lucky. That's we work amazing. in a wonderful place. Did you think you'd wind up doing something like this? And, and how did you get here? How did I get here? It's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I always knew that I wanted to do paleontology since I was about 13 years old or so. And um, I knew I wanted to live out west. I grew up in Oklahoma and Arkansas. And I always knew that I kind of wanted to live out west because this is where you read about fossils being found and being more abundant. So this was always kind of the goal to get here, but um, I've worked for colleges and I've worked for museums before I worked for the Bureau of Land Management. And it's really great to work for the BLM because I get to be involved in so many different aspects of paleontology and help so many um, people that it's really rewarding and it's a lot of fun. Is there any type of fossil that if someone were to bring it in, you take a look at, at it and just be either surprised or amazed or or kind of hoping that they, that someone would find? <laughs> yeah, we, um, we have a big hunk of rock out here called the Navajo Formation that represents all these big ancient sand dunes. It would have been like modern day Namibia, but in the Jurassic period. And we don't get very many dinosaur bones preserved from that period of time or any bones of any animals, really. We only have ever found two dinosaurs have ever been found in this formation, but it's a humongous pocket of rock 
that contains many millions of years of time, and we get really abundant dinosaur tracks. So we know that there are more animals that were living in this area than what are, you know, reported by actual fossilized bones. So it would be really awesome to have people find more actual fossils in the Navajo formation than what we're getting. So that would that would be a lot of fun. And we even get petrified um, animal burrows where animals were digging through the sand dunes and living in these things. And it would be really wonderful to find an animal in one of those burrows. How do you know that's what you found? I mean, I'm well, just thinking it must look like a hole. Well, it doesn't look like a hole, though. It's So think of like a prairie dog town. And you fill this prairie dog town in with something harder like concrete. And then you wash all the surrounding dirt away. And what you would be left behind with are all these chambers, these tunnels weaving in and out of the dirt. And that's what we see preserved are these sand-filled chambers. So there's sand tubes, basically. And they're undulating and going in circles and interconnecting with other tubes and living chambers. And they're, they're actually really interesting. And they're more abundant than what we realized. I had no idea those were even things you could find. Yep. You can see their little claw marks on the inside where they're, where they're digging through the dirt. It's so cool. <laughs> and what kind of dinosaurs use those? Or not so dinosaurs? Those, yeah, they probably weren't dinosaurs. They were probably mammal-like reptiles. Rebecca, you had earlier mentioned that you help facilitate uh, scientists or researchers coming in and wanting to excavate. Do these groups come in with a specific hypothesis or thing that they're searching for, or how does that work? It's a little both. Sometimes we have a researcher that'll come to us and say, I'm interested in this time period, and I was wondering if you know of any fossil sites that I should check out or that need excavation within this certain pocket of time. And a lot of times we have a, a huge database of all the fossil sites we found, so I can direct them to sites or to areas that have higher potential than others. And they can spend some time prospecting around and hopefully finding fossils. And that's happened many times. And then sometimes people have already gone out and done that work on their own. They've hiked around or somebody has contacted them about finding some specific kind of fossil. And they will apply to get an excavation permit so that they can go out and actually dig up those fossils. And often when they're doing that and they start wandering around, they start finding more fossils. And so one thing leads to another. Is there, do they come like, I mean, how long is the permitting process? If you're just, if you, if somebody calls you and says, I'm looking for this era and, and this kind of um, sort of part of, you know, land, you know, qualifications and you say, yeah, we have that. Then they have to like go through a lot of hoops or is it sort of like, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't take too much effort to get a BLM permit. You, especially if you're just doing the going out and hiking and prospecting for permit, or sorry, if you're going out and hiking and prospecting for fossils, we can get you a surface permit reasonably quickly if you turn in kind of a research plan and your resume and let us know who's going to be out with you and when you'll be out. We can turn those things around pretty quickly. And we permit researchers to do that work for vertebrates, for invertebrates, for plant fossils. So that's something that we're really used to, and, and that doesn't take very long at all. The thing that will take a little bit longer is if you want to excavate something. Say you want to excavate a big Apatosaurus dinosaur. That can take a little bit more time because sauropod dinosaurs are very large, and so we need to go out to the area and kind of figure out where the animal's at, how big your hole will be, and then we may need to bring other resource specialists out 
who would need to check the area to make sure we're not damaging an endangered species of plant or interrupting a nesting eagle or something like that before you start your excavation. And that can sometimes take a few months. It just depends on the office you're working in. Sometimes those things can get turned around pretty quickly. Uh, Recently, there was a story about a dinosaur tail that was discovered, Mm -hmm. which just seems fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Or do you know anything more about that? I don't know a ton about it. I know that it was it's a small theropod dinosaur tail that was preserved in amber. And one of the reasons it's so cool is you can actually see dinosaur feathers, which that's pretty awesome, right? One of the really cool things, though, about that chunk of amber that a lot of people missed is that it has other animals inside the amber. It has like, you can see a little ant floating out there outside of the tail, which is kind of cool because it shows, you know, insects that still exist today that were existing back then, even with the dinosaurs. And invertebrate paleontologists are able to study those and see how much they would have changed just as well as we can study the dinosaur. So it's pretty cool stuff. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I, I, have anybody ever found feathers before? In like, yes. Sort of in case, oh, okay, so it's not brand new, brand new, but it's It's not the first time that we've found feathers in, in amber, but... Um, but it doesn't happen every day. What is, I mean, you, you sort of rattled off a dozen different things that you're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. Do you have one that's sort of your favorite or or is are they each appealing in their own way? They definitely are appealing in their own way. And, it, and sometimes it depends on the type of time of year as to um, what I'm enjoying doing more. Um, I really like to get to go out and interact with the public and tell them about the fossils when they're in town. So usually in the spring, summer, fall, Um, that's very enjoyable for me to be able to kind of help people enjoy all these wonderful fossils that we have in the area. But I also love to go out in the summer and work with our researchers that come to the area and help them do their excavations, or at least get to visit them in the field. That's really enjoyable. And then in the wintertime, when it's really cold down here, and sometimes when it's snowy, it's nice to actually be able to be inside and get these permits done for the researchers that want to be out in the field or to work on my own research, or to help develop new education and outreach materials for the upcoming summer. So what is the research you're doing these these days? So the, If you can talk about it. Yeah, no, I can talk about it. The uh, main research project that I'm working on right now is studying a ornithomimid dinosaur, which is a ostrich-like dinosaur. And I'm studying a foot of a dinosaur that was preserved in Arkansas. And for a long time, this was the only dinosaur body fossil known from the entire state of Arkansas up until very, very recently. And so I'm working to compare those bones to other known ornithomimid bones in the area and describing it so that it can finally have an official written up description that'll be published. I, why? Why that? Just out of curiosity. I mean, what? what I mean, I, it's inter- I find that fascinating. I mean, because obviously you have to catalog all these things and you have to identify them so that more research can be built upon it. But why did? Why are? Why is that your topic at the moment? So the reason this is sort of my topic at the moment, it has several different parts. Part of it is that. Um, I grew up part of my life in Arkansas and went to school there. And this was a specimen that I worked on when I was an undergrad and worked on for my um, senior research project. And I never really got it officially um, published. So it's something I had always wanted to come back to. And there had been a push recently to try to make it the state dinosaur of Arkansas because Arkansas does not have a state dinosaur. So we thought, well, let's make sure that it has 
um, an official description going along with it so that it's um, better described and we can tell people more about it than what we could. And a lot has changed since the time when I was an undergraduate at the University of Arkansas versus now as far as the research um, evolving and changing with ornithomimids and a lot more has been published than what had been published before. So I was able to take the project a lot further than I ever have been um, previously. So those are some of the things that kind of led up to um, working on this project and trying to get it finished up. And I hope to be able to go back out to Arkansas this spring and work with some of the local schools and do some education and outreach and help um, kids in Arkansas find out all this cool information about dinosaurs that were living right in their backyards. And when you're growing up in, in Arkansas, it's not something you necessarily are thinking about. So it's a pretty cool project. So you said something in there that made me think, do, do all states have a state dinosaur? I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> not all states. I'm Googling this for Maryland now. Yeah, <laughs> not all states do. Some states have like a state fossil, but they may not have a state dinosaur. The state dinosaur for Utah is Allosaurus. The state dinosaur for Colorado is Stegosaurus. So a lot of the Western states will have state fossils or state dinosaurs, but not all states have state dinosaurs. So it's a pretty unique thing. Now, you had mentioned uh, working with uh, specimens for this, I won't even try to recreate this word or re-say the word for this <laughs> ostrich-like dinosaur. Um, are, are there enough specimens that you can get a good sample? Are you working with one or two or is it, you know, a hundred? Yeah, so there's a lot of specimens that have been described um, pretty recently and uh, most of them are from Asia. Um, a lot of them are from Mongolia or China. And so a lot of those I don't have access to personally, but I get papers. So scientific papers, I'll study those. If I can get a research cast of one of those um, specimens, I can get a hold of that and study it. And as far as North America goes, we really don't have many ornithomimids um, preserved in North America. And that's another thing that makes this specimen so important in the early Cretaceous, um, where it comes from in Arkansas, there's only one other specimen that's been published on. And it was actually found right out here in Utah where I work. So I've been able to study that material much more closely than what I could have when I was an undergraduate. So it's, it's important because it, it tells us about fossils that we don't know much about from the early Cretaceous, but it also helps to fill in some gaps as far as the ornithomimid evolution and, and biogeography bio and how they got to Arkansas maybe and how they made it out to Utah and what do they possibly evolve into elsewhere because we get a lot of these dinosaurs in the late Cretaceous in um, Montana and, and in Canada. So... Let's say that three times fast, Mumu. Ornithomimus. Okay, maybe we cut this part out. <laughs> Spelling test later. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I have a question you might not be able to answer. Ask it anyway. I don't know if you can answer it, but I will ask it anyway. Um, do you ever get people who will secretly excavate? Oh. Because they were told no? Not so much because they were told no, um, and definitely not with researchers. The researchers are always really great to work with, and and they know that they need to have a permit, and they, they always, you know, work with us to, to get things done the right way. But we do have some people that will 
dig for fossils illegally, and that can be for a variety of reasons because they may not know that there's a law protecting um, fossils from public lands, or maybe because they worry if they say something that somebody else will dig it up and they won't be able to enjoy it. There seems to be a variety of reasons that people will secretly dig for fossils, but it is illegal. <laughs> is, is, is there like a is there a black market for fossils? I would oh, guess absolutely. there is, right? Yes. Just like anything else. Yeah, and I should specify that it is only illegal to excavate illegally from public lands as far as BLM lands go and Forest Service vertebrate fossils. You need ah. a permit for that. You can collect invertebrate fossils like, yeah, like trilobites and things like that without a permit for your personal use that you're not going to be selling or bartering. Um, so that kind of thing is okay. And, and we like that. That's great. Um, but unfortunately, there is a black market, especially for dinosaur bone. A lot of it gets cut up into jewelry um, or uh, I've noticed wedding rings seem to be very trendy right now. Dinosaur wedding rings. Um, people. What? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Chris Hartwick has. I'm Googling this uh, now. He has dinosaur bone. Wait, wait, wait. His so wedding like, ring. Is it like, it's like the, the ring is still made out of metal, but like instead of a diamond, it's a fossilized bone? Both. You'll get what? rings that have been turned oh out God. of bone and you'll get inlaid rings. And people will, you know, use it for for knife inlays and, and they call it gem bone because it when it polishes up, it can look pretty as far as different colors go in it. Unfortunately, it is a big problem. Of course, some people just want a dinosaur for their living room or, you know, whatever. They're, <laughs> of course. I, yeah, there's a I know. There's some people out there that like that kind of stuff. They think it's interesting and they don't want a replica. They want the real thing. Um, so there's definitely a market for that. And there are people that supply to that market from private lands, but from public lands, in as far as vertebrate fossils go, that is illegal. And a lot of people that are wearing the bone jewelry don't even realize that it could be somewhat radioactive. And maybe you don't want a radioactive dinosaur bone hanging around your neck. <laughs> um, that, that's certainly a wedding message of sorts. Here's a ring. You might be wearing it radioactively, but it's okay. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I love you anyway. Oh. Forever is not quite forever. <laughs> forever just got a little shorter. Oh, yeah. man. I had no idea. That is, yeah. I guess it makes sense. I mean, ivory is sort of, I mean. Yeah. Our animals have just been dead longer, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and petrified rock. Petrified yeah. rock is like, you know, people make clocks out of it and wall yeah. hanging. I mean, that's so, I guess it sort of makes sense. I just, I don't know how I would feel about it. That. It's something it's we funny. struggle with, um, but we try to do a better <laughs> yeah. job with educating people and just telling them what the rules are and why they shouldn't do certain activities like stealing bone. Because even if you just take a little flake of it, it might be taking a piece that's very important or it may help us. It may keep us from being able to better locate um, the actual fossil in the ground. So there's several reasons why you don't want to actually pick up vertebrate fossils off the ground and take them with you. So, yeah, we're just trying to do better about educating people. And most people don't realize that we had a paleontology law passed in 2009 called the Paleontological Resources Preservation Act. And it's actually open for public comment right now. People can go to the BLM website for blm.gov slash paleontology. And there's a link that'll take them to our purple law where they can actually do public comment on that up until um, early in February. Now, you had mentioned doing outreach for 
children um, or local schools. Um, what kind of outreach or what kind of activities um, are you guys doing? Well, we do all sorts of things. I was really lucky to work with a great batch of interns this last year, and they were doing everything from public hikes and talks where they would go out um, every day and hang out at one of our public uh, paleontological sites that we have in the area where you can go see dinosaur tracks or dinosaur bones. And they would give hikes and tell you what you would see while you were at that site and why it was important. And then in the evenings, we would give talks to the public at um, kind of our visitor center here in Moab. And we have also done activities like little craft activities and talks at our local libraries and for our local multicultural center. And we've also done some career fairs at the local high schools for kids to find out more about not just paleontology, but science in general. Is there um, something... I mean, you mentioned when you were studying the, the bones from, from Asia and, and from elsewhere that sometimes you get a cast of, of the bone to work with, which is, of course is better than reading the paper about it. Um, and other folks we've talked to that work in, in um, archaeology and paleontology talk about the new 3D modeling and stuff like that. Do you get to play with those kind of things? Have you noticed the technology changing in the industry in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. It's getting wonderful. And with my ornithomimid specimen from Arkansas, we did actually have it 3D scanned so that we can have the, you know some really accurate figures for the paper, but also have that 3D data available to the public. So if anybody wanted to be able to study these bones in three dimension without holding a physical cast, they could do that. Um, we're also working more and more with photogrammetry. We document all of our track sites out here in the um, Canyon Country District using photogrammetry, which is basically overlapping 3D photos or overlapping photos that we then um, process and we're able to use, we're able to project them into three dimension so that when you're back at the office or in your lab, you can take this data set and somebody you know, somebody in Mongolia could look at one of our dinosaur track sites and study it and share it with their students or be able to um, possibly rapid prototype their own track if they needed to study a specific track without actually pouring anything in the tracks themselves, which can cause damage. So we're doing a lot more photogrammetry these days, especially on track sites. It just seems like if it, change, it changes the business and, the, and the, the, the field so much to have that kind of access. Oh, absolutely. I think it makes us more of a global community than we've ever been before, because even though we may not be able to travel to to China or Portugal or some of these places, we can ex still exchange data a lot more easily than we ever have been able to before. Is there some type of technology or functionality that technology has not been able to capture yet that, you know, if it did come along, you know, it would be a game changer in this field? Yeah, something that's being worked on currently is people are studying um, dinosaur bone and using some complex geochemistry that I won't even try to describe because um, I would probably fail miserably. They're getting better at being able to kind of fingerprint bones. And we're hoping that someday in the future they'll be able to say, like if I handed somebody a bone, they could do this, this analysis on and be able to say, this is a bone from the yellow cat member of the Cedar Mountain Formation. And it comes from the Moab area versus coming from over by Green River. So being able to more narrow down 
where a specimen comes from will definitely help us, especially, unfortunately, in some law enforcement cases, but also with museum specimens where maybe something was collected and the locality data was lost or wasn't as accurate as it could be, it might help us to better tie specimens back to sites. In terms of, of, of regions and types, you know, we were talking about all the, the different types of dinosaurs that you guys have in Utah, and it seems like there's everything. Is that just because of, of the, the environment and the, the rocky out, you know, outcrops and formations that we have access to that that's true? Or is it really something different about that part of the country? A lot of it has to do with the fact that just the right age rocks are preserved and they've been being eroded for the right amount of time, and they don't have too much vegetation on them, um, which is really helpful. Um, And so I think that's part of why we're in such a good area. And Utah in general has a wonderful fossil record. We have fossils, you know, that are a billion years old, all the way up to very recent fossils like woolly mammoth. So we kind of cover the gambit here in Utah. We we just have the right age rocks everywhere. (laughs) Utah's great. Um, is that is Utah is known for that? Is I mean I know you know there's a, you always think of Montana and the Dakotas and exactly and, I think people more classically think of places like Montana, the Dakotas, Colorado, Wyoming when they think ooh dinosaurs, um, but I think Utah is definitely capturing the public's attention and and definitely researchers as well. We have over ninety four permits just for paleontology work here in Utah. Um, on BLM land. So we have by far more more paleontological work taking place in Utah than any other state in the country right now. And I think it's because we have so many fossils and people just come here to see everything because even Grand Staircase National Monument has been producing a lot of fossils um, well over the last decade. And um, more fossils are being found in the vernal area, not of dinosaurs necessarily. They even find um, younger mammals and things like that. So Utah's just got all sorts of great stuff. Do you have a, a favorite find that has come out of, of your work um, in Utah, or are there too many to name? There's a lot to name, but getting to work on the Mill Canyon dinosaur track site here in Utah has been really special because it's a really cool 112 million year old dinosaur track site in the Ruby Ranch, member of the Cedar Mountain Formation. And we have um, at least six different kinds of dinosaur tracks preserved at one site. And we have dinosaurs that are slipping in the mud. We have dinosaurs that are just kind of walking along, not in a big hurry. We have dinosaurs that are running. Um, and we have all different kinds of dinosaurs. We have the, you know, we have big meat-eating dinosaurs. We have the little armored dinosaurs. We have dromaeosaur tracks, which are really cool. Um, so that's like a kind of like a Utah raptor. And it's one of the first trackways that's ever been found in North America. So it was just a really cool site to get to help excavate and help be a part of. Well, I, ha- I want to get back to these tracks. I have a question about this. So in order for all these tracks to be preserved, does that mean these dinosaurs had to all walk in a certain area in a certain small time frame? Or were these different eras and different years? Or was it like in an hour span, 10 different dinosaurs walked in a certain area? Yeah, no, those are really great questions. So these tracks were deposited as far as the ones at Mill Canyon go, probably over a series of days to weeks on this flat, um, wet, muddy lake bed. 
and there were areas that were out of the mud, there were areas that were covered in water, and you can actually see within the tracks how some are in areas where it was muddier, and some are in areas where the mud's drier. You can tell the mud was slippery by these animals slippering, slipping in it. There's even algae preserved in the mud, like a layer of pond scum. So there's all sorts of really cool things we can learn from this site, but it most likely took place over several days to maybe a week or two. Um, but that's it a probably pretty small wasn't window. all the same day. It is, yeah, and it's it's excellent that it actually got preserved. You can see the sediment that filled in the tracks filled it in quickly, but not so quickly that it would have eroded the tracks up. And also that layer of algae on top of the mud helped hold the tracks in place so that they didn't get scoured away. Because I was just thinking, I mean, you know, you, you should hear these stories if you see like the the little rabbit's tracks and then you see the fox right behind it and you're like, well, that didn't end well. And, and, and the idea <laughs> that like if these tracks were all made within, you know, three or four days of each other, that all of these different species were within the same area and either avoiding or with or around each other. This oh, isn't yeah. like, well, this one was here this year and then 10 years later. Yeah, no, we, well, we know through the fossil record that these animals were living together, but it's nice to get a trackway where it's a snapshot of time where we know these animals were probably coming to the area for food and water and interacting, but not necessarily in a bad way. They were just kind of walking along and they probably definitely saw each other. Um, one of our nicest trackways is of a big meat-eating dinosaur, kind of like Acrocanthosaurus that went through at one point. He's going his own way. And then later, a big sauropod dinosaur comes through and he steps right in the middle of one of these Acrocanthosaurus tracks. And his foot is about the size of a dinner plate. And it's stomped right in the middle of this dinosaur track. So that's kind of a fun one to see, to know one animal came through first and then another animal came through second. It's just fascinating. I mean, you can sort of picture whatever Disney movie you have in your head of like, <laughs> you know, dinosaurs, you know, tromping through these lands, but it's, it really is there, you know, you have the physical proof in front of you. Absolutely. And every time I see the slip marks, I hear the banana peel noise in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. If it, I, keep, I keep seeing land before time. I, that's so what I keep seeing in my head too. I think we're dating ourselves. Um, <laughs> no, that's what I would see too. So don't worry. <laughs> um, it, how we would uh, now, now that you've brought up the banana peel, how big of a dinosaur is it that's that's slipping in the mud? Is this one of these gigantic things that's going to like cause an earthquake when it slips and falls? Or is it one of these little guys? Well, it's an animal that's about the size of a human. It was one of the dromaeosaurs. Oh, okay. So if you remember in Jurassic Park when the dinosaur chases a little boy into the the ice chest and slips in the water and falls down, that's basically what happened. <laughs> Only without It's not the like one of these gigantic things that like you know, collapses and takes out like 10 trees with it. Yeah, no, no, that would have, that animal would probably still be there if it fell that hard. (laughs) If only that had happened. Right? I would love that. But no, this is an animal Uh, that could have picked itself up and kept moving. It probably looked over his shoulder to make sure none of his friends were laughing at him. (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate hearing about dinosaurs and banana peels and everything in between (laughs) thanks for um, having me on I appreciate having a chance to talk about it hey 
hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copycuts. Cuts.